Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. It's always tempting to dramatize current events by recasting them in historical terms. To be honest, I'm pretty skeptical of this impulse. And I've been especially skeptical of what seems like a whole genre of books and articles claiming that America is headed toward another civil war. And while the idea still seems far-fetched, it does seem a little more plausible to me these days than it did, say, five years ago. For one thing, this happened. January 6th was a sobering moment of political violence. A lot of people got hurt. A few people even died. But one woman was shot and killed by a Capitol Police officer. Ashley Babbitt. In the past, when federal officers have killed civilians who were seen by their supporters as innocent, no matter how heavily armed they might have been, it galvanized what came to be known as the militia movement. Starting in Ruby Ridge, Idaho in 1992. Vicky is dead. Oh, are you proud of yourself? Are you We're proud of yourself? We're going to war! You're going to kill all Then the siege in Waco, Texas the following year. You brought a bunch of guys out here and you killed some of my children. There's a bunch of us dead and a bunch of you guys dead. Now, now that's your fault. That inspired Timothy McVeigh to bomb a building in Oklahoma City exactly two years later. You can see it looking up. April 19, 1995. Uh, a car bomb loaded with about 1,200 pounds of explosives that started this entire thing. So when we think about whether it's realistic to worry about a second civil war, you have to wonder. Everybody knows Brianna Taylor. Why don't they know Ashley Babbitt? Why don't people know who Ashley Babbitt is? Could the killing of Ashley Babbitt on January 6th be a spark that ignites something bigger? I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Jeff Charlotte. He's a writer whose work has appeared in publications like Vanity Fair, Rolling Stone, and many more. His previous book, The Family, was made into a documentary miniseries on Netflix. And his new book is called The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. 
And it is a gripping read, not just because Jeff is a good writer, but because in these short essays, he documents what's going on in America after January 6th. The religious dimensions of American politics is very much Jeff's beat. And so he isn't dismissive or reductive in his encounters with all sorts of people, no matter how colorful, we'll say. Instead, Jeff encourages us to open our eyes and just take a look at what's going on outside our front door. Anger, resentment, and violent fantasies are everywhere. And the question isn't whether or not this is going on near you. It almost certainly is. The question is, what will come of all this? Jeff Charlotte, welcome to the show. Hi, Sean. Good to be with you. I'm glad you're here. Um, the first line of your book dispenses with the usual pretense that this is like a self-contained story with a beginning, middle, and end. As you say, the book is written from the middle of something. And I want to start there. What are we in the middle of, Jeff? I think we're in the middle. Of, well, I hope we're in the middle, man. I hope we're not at the beginning of what I call the Trumpocene, the age of Trump. And I mean this... And this, by the way, goes on with or without Trump. Trump changes the vernacular of American politics. As one preacher tells me in Omaha, Nebraska, he says, you know, Trump's coming back, either the man himself or his spirit in the body of another. And I think of it if politically savvy listeners understand it in terms of the age of Reagan, which political scientists and historians would date from not 1980 to 88, but more like 1980 to 2016. Even though we have Democrats in there, American government is still fundamentally shaped by the paradigm that came in with Reagan. What Trump did was build on something that was coming, but he changed, he opened a door dramatically. And I think any of us who uh, say... Well, we're past that. I and uh, I hope they're right. I I'd really like to be wrong. <laughs> oh, the naivete. Yeah, yeah. He'll never fucking go away, Jeff. No, he won't. <laughs> He'll never go away. <laughs> he won't. I think that's really true. I mean, like we may get past him, yeah. but the Trump has seen and the way it's reshaped American politics, the way it's done these realignments, that's going to be with us for decades and through the structural changes. And, you know, the other thing that I say that we're in the middle of, and it's sort of an undertow of the undertow in the book, is we think about climate change, right? Every day that passes of inaction that we are stuck by fighting what I do believe we can now, not always properly call fascism here, is days that we're not addressing that. And we're going to live with that for a long time. And the droughts and the floods and the fires, they're going to be here for a long, long time. That's, that's Trump just reminding us, hey, hey guys, I was here. Well, this phrase, the Trump has seen, it's useful in as much as it's capturing this period that we're in, but also... I think, signaling that we've really crossed some kind of threshold here. I mean, how would you describe this shift? What did we leave behind and, and what is new about wherever the hell we are now <laughs> in the Trump scene? Yeah, well, you know, I've been writing about right-wing movements for 20 years. Right, right. And I, I sort of have a good marker because in a previous book, 2008 book called The Family, um, I was wrong. And in that book, I was writing about this longtime Christian nationalist, Christian conservative organization in Washington. It's all the way back to 1935. And they had a lot of fascist fellow travelers. And I say, look, even though this organization in the post-war era was actually recruiting high-ranking Nazi war criminals to advise U.S. congressmen, you know, that's not conspiracy theory. That happened. Um, 
I still don't think we can properly understand it as fascism. It doesn't mean it's good. There's more than one kind of bad under the sun. But fascism speaks to a specific sort of historical and ideological construct. And there was elements that we didn't have. We didn't have the full cult of personality. I thought white Christian nationalism would prevent that. They would never switch out God for a person. I was wrong. I also thought that sort of the American way of violence it's a, we're a violent country, always have been, but we have always imagined ourselves as the peacemakers. What Trump opened the door to was a cult of personality and not just violence, but a reverence for violence, what scholars of fascism call regeneration through violence, that a, a nation can only experience its identity. And that goes from a Trump rally where he's saying, saying wouldn't it be great to beat somebody up? Yeah or to the stories that are the stock and trade now of Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity and so many others. I was going to bring up fascism later, but you brought it up now, so let's... The F word. You have resisted using that word for, for a while. Oh, yeah. But now, clearly, you're pretty comfortable using it. In fact, I presume you think it's necessary to use it now. I mean, why do you think it, it is now important to not run away from that word? I mean... You know, these are conversations I've been in my whole life as a, as a reporter on right-wing movements and also working in academic settings within religious studies, right? So another example is a term like cult. And in religious studies, we don't use that. We say new religious movement, right? One person's cult is another person's Methodist, new Methodist church. You know, John Wesley was once a cult, right? right. I, I've always thought that made sense. At the same time, we can speak in that context of fundamentalism because fundamentalism describes a historical construct. So too with fascism. And I think, you know, I'm subjectively, transparently a liberal left writer, but I've had arguments with friends on the left who wanted to say every right-wing president, some of the Democrats too, are fascists. And it's true. Those presidents have, I think, have done some really horrible things. But I kind of think what's called for now is, especially for our political press, to be engaging with the historical depth. You got to be reading. If there's fascism out there, if it's a possibility, and the term is about, you need to know what this term means historically in a deeper context. And if you don't call it that, you are in the process of normalizing it. Fascism is such a fuzzy, loaded term. I mean, all these isms, these are not discrete categories, right? I mean, yeah. we're never really going to agree on what it is exactly. And uh, I, I, we can certainly talk about the hallmarks of fascism. But like one, one thing I would say, right, is that like, I think fascist politics emerge in part when politics has failed or when enough people think politics has failed. And I think that's sort of where we are now, where we have this lumbering, bloated, degraded democracy that people feel alienated from. And that breeds this temptation to burn and destroy and find some group to blame. And unfortunately, there are plenty of bad actors around to exploit and mobilize these temptations. And that's a very dangerous place. You know, I call in the book a kind of a, a comfort of chaos, right? And yeah. I, I, I will disagree with you. I mean, I think we look at Robert O. Paxson and Frederick O. Finkelstein and any number of scholars there are hallmarks of fascism, just as there are of socialism, just as there are of democracy. If we can say something is democratic or not, then we can say if something's fascist or not. We're quite comfortable saying that we believe that this country is more democratic than the other. So we can engage with that. But more to the point of where we are, I think of fascism as a dream politics, as a myth politics. And that's where the chaos in it comes. The chaos is the point. It's the comfort of it. So many 
in mainstream political position, they, they get stuck on, but what, this is hypocritical. You used to have this position. Yeah. Fascism, whatever we want to call it, this dream politics, this chaos politics, has any position that it needs to, any position that feels good. And you will see those fluctuations. You will see the enemy of the day changing too. When Trump came in, it was Muslims. Then it was undocumented people. Right now, it's trans kids. The old enemies haven't stopped. They just keep adding new ones. There will be more front lines. Of course, it's always people like you and me, the media. We're kind of a good enemy within because we could be your neighbor. We could be your own child, might become a journalist, and you don't know it. We function like Jews in the czarist empire or like queer folks in Cold War America. Journalists are the enemy within. I should say, too, just to be clear, I'm not saying nothing can be called fascist because it's so fuzzy as to be completely like incoherent. Yeah. I just mean there is some debate about what the fascist minimum actually consists of, right? I mean, like something you say in the book is that grief without mourning curdles into fury and hate. Yeah. But when we're talking about fascist politics, right, like I would also say that grief without a viable vision of the future is also a very straight road to fascism because it's how you end up with a politics that can only look backwards yes. because you can only live on nostalgia, right? You can only long for some return to a mythical past that never really existed and can never exist in the future. And that perversely is kind of the point, isn't it? Right? I mean, I've said this before, right? Like the real evil genius of fascism is that it feeds on the grievances of people while absolutely reinforcing those grievances in the process. Oh, yeah. But the way to understand it from, I think that's exactly right, that grief without a vision of the future curdles into hate and rage. Mourning is how we form a vision of the future. Yeah, Mourning is how we come to terms with a loss. And whether that's the loss of a million dead from the pandemic, whether it's the loss of a white person's sense, I would say an unfair sense, but a sense of their loss of status in the world, right? Mourning allows us to process and think about what we have lost and to realize that we still exist, that we still endure. You write that this is a book of stories, right? Of, of difficult people doing terrible things, and it is certainly that. But that it's also a register of grief and its distortions. Yeah. And we, we can't catalog all the grievances here. No. But maybe it's worth at least trying to understand the sense of loss that is undergirding this reactionary turn in our politics, right? I mean, and I think, you know, racism or the economy by themselves aren't sufficient answers, even though they're both pretty clearly part of the story. So how do you make sense of the feelings of loss and grief that you're writing about? Can you even sum it up? I, I, I have a paragraph. Can I give you a paragraph? Yeah, man. Yeah, all right. Um, such victims, for they understand themselves as victims, feel themselves drawn together not by whiteness, but by that of which it is made, by their belief in a strong man and their desire for an iron-fisted God and their love of the way guns make them feel inside and their grief over COVID-19 and their denial of COVID-19 and their loathing of systemic as descriptive of that which they can't see, can't hold in their hands and weigh, and their certainty that countless children are being taken, stolen, and raped, if not in body, then in spirit, indoctrinated to hate themselves. They are angry about their own bodies, about how other people's bodies make them feel, about eating too much because they're afraid they won't have enough, about not having enough, about others having more. They are drawn together by their love of fairness, which is how it used to be. They're certain they remember, or if they're too young, they've been told, or maybe they've all just seen it in a movie, a Western or a space opera or revenge fantasy, the forever frontier that is equal parts Little House on the Prairie and The Punisher. 
make America great again, the solace of tautology, a loop, a return, a story the end of which has already been written in the past. Really, what I'm describing there is the sort of the intersectionality of the right. You know, the left has this idea of intersectionality. Yeah. So if it's true, it exists on the right. We can't say, is it race or is it class? The answer is yes. Is it race, class, or, or misogyny? Yes. Is it true economic dismay? Y yes. Is it a million things? Yes. And that's what you discover when you go into the lives of these people. Some, I think, hear that as a defense. I don't. Yeah. You make your choices, right? The pain, though, is real. The choice is what they do with it. Yeah, I think that's right. And damn, did the pandemic really do a number on us? People used to always say that, you know, look, if, if what we really need is some kind of alien invasion, because that would <laughs> that would bring us all together in this kind of global rally around the flag effect. But <laughs> And you could have thought something similar about a pandemic, but boy, it did the opposite. And all these fissures and, and cracks and fractures and divisions just got exploded yeah. and amplified under these conditions. And it just, the way we responded to that just mapped so neatly along these ideological fault lines. And, and Well, and I wouldn't say even mapped along them. I think in, in some ways it took those fault lines and it split them, right? And, and it made them. Yeah. And then now, you know, if I'm on this side of the fault line and you're on this side of the fault line, it's like, you know, island evolution, you know, how animals evolve differently on their little islands. Now we start changing and becoming different things than we were before. Yeah. And I mean, when I say the, the loss that we don't speak of, it's not just the right. I mean, nobody's really speaking of the full scale of where are our monuments to, you know, the million plus dead? Where's our acknowledgement that people are still dying? We deal with it all the time little systems that don't work as well anymore, right? And they just didn't really come back. Yeah. And all of those are little registers of grief that we don't quite, quite process. I don't think, I'd have to check, you know, Twitter keeps you honest, right? Did I use the word fascism before the pandemic? I'm not sure if I did. I certainly thought that Trump's politics were a fascist formation, but I didn't think we could really speak of a large fascist movement. I don't think we would have gotten here without the pandemic. I don't think so either. And that's a good bridge to January 6th in lots of ways. Yeah, yeah. And obviously that day is an important chapter in this story. And I wanna talk about the significance of that event for you. I mean, you know, first of all, as we, we sit here from our perch of two years and some change later, what do you make of what happened there? I mean, do you think it was the culmination of, of something? Was it the beginning of something? And no, it's interesting because I, you know, a lot of the book obviously revolves around this woman, Ashley Babbitt, this 35-year-old Air Force veteran who was a white woman climbing through a glass window and was shot and killed by a police officer and became the sort of the martyr of the movement. They say she's unarmed, but she wasn't. That's her knife on the cover of the book, actually. Um, I will say, having covered the right for so long, having been one of the, the folks who, right after the election, said, I think this is a slow coup, and at the time, people, you know, there was a lot of divide and people saying that's hysterical. So you would think that I would be well-situated for January 6, 2021, to understand that it was coming or could come. And even so, I think like everybody, I, I was glued to my computer. I was, I was texting my wife furiously. They're, they're marching to the, the cap, they're on the steps of the Capitol. They're inside the Capitol. And then 
this woman is dead. And I think that was a pivot point. Was she the first person kind of threw the broken glass in the door? It was a, yeah, it was a, a pretty large mob. Uh, they were pounding on the wooden doors with glass windows of the speaker's lounge behind which were a number of Congress people. Ashley Babbitt, who had been very clear and explicit, had said, my goal is to storm the Capitol. And you know, she was, as her friends say, a firecracker. She was the only woman in that crowd. And she was, once they smashed the glass, and there's cops right there, but the cops can't do anything. She is up and in the window and sort of figuring out how she's going to leap over this heap of chairs they've stacked up. And that's when he shoots her. So once that happened, that becomes a turning point. That becomes, as a student of religion, that becomes a theological turning point. We had been in what I describe as a kind of American Gnostic gospel, a time of conspiracies and secrets and initiations and, you know, the Q-inflected cosmos of Trump. With Ashley's death, we enter what you might think of in a religious study sense as an age of martyrs. And we saw it happening real time. It was astonishing to me. There's many videos of her death. I've combed through all of them and all the people talking outside. She's a 35-year-old woman. You know, I don't know how much she weighs, maybe about 120 pounds. But they immediately saying, ah, she was in her 20s. No, no, she was 16. She was 115 pounds. Just an innocent little girl, right? An innocent little white girl killed by a big black man. That's the story they told. It's an old, old American story. That is actually, you know, those who are not students of history don't know that so many lynchings of black men going up to Emmett Till, where the idea of a dangerous black man who is threatening the virginal white womanhood of America. And with Ashley Babbitt, they had that, and then they had a twofer, because she was a veteran, which you can read in this kind of mythological sense. A veteran tracks as male. So you get the stabbed in the back myth, and you get the lynching myth all rolled up, and one golden-haired girl from Southern California. Ashley Babbitt isn't just held up as a patriot. She's honored as a martyr. After a short break, I'll ask Jeff why she's being treated as a religious figure. Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain, and their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. 
At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. So maybe you can help me understand how Ashley Babbitt has taken on this religious significance. Is it that she's seen as having died in an epic historical drama of good versus evil or freedom versus tyranny? Is that why the mythology around her outstrips anything that actually tracks with who she was and what she really did? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, when you say that far outstrips the significance, I think of one January Sixer I met in Sacramento at a a rally for Ashley Babbitt, George Riley. You don't know George Riley, and that is a deep bitterness to him because everyone, he says, everyone knows uh, Richard Barnett, the man who put his shoes up on Nancy Pelosi's desk just because he got his picture taken. Oh, yeah. But I rubbed my ass on her desk, and nobody took a picture, and why don't I get credit? He's got, you know, three charges. But, uh... He describes himself, he says, how to understand my role in January 6th. He says, I'm like that guy from the movie 300, which is 300 Spartans versus the Persian horde. And only one man is left alive to tell the tale. And I'm like, but George, only one person was killed. You're all left alive. We're talking here now. He still sees himself as given this kind of sacred charge. And we'll actually use the term sacred for it. But what's fascinating is having reported in Russia at the beginning of Putin's sort of consolidation of power through an anti-LGBTQ campaign beginning in 2013. A lot of the laws that, say, Ron DeSantis are implementing now really were tried out first in Moscow in 2013. And I spent a lot of time there and with Russians who are really excited about this law. I mean, almost no Russians go to church, but they love the idea of the Christian nation. So when I got to Trump rallies in 2016, And there was the most militant preachers I'd ever heard. And I've been doing this for a long time at every rally. And people were cheering, but they weren't churchgoers. They loved this idea. Same with Ashley Babbitt. Ashley Babbitt, complicated character. I would think you could argue queer in practice, if not in theory. She lived in what they called a a thruple. It was her, her husband, and their girlfriend together. But she starts putting up signs outside her house, Christian, and she starts understanding America as a Christian nation, which for her really quickly tracks into a kind of whiteness. And so I think that's where we need to understand that religion, because how do you speak of whiteness, which doesn't actually exist? It's a kind of a made-up thing. You're already now into theological ground. It doesn't have to be Christian. Christianity is not that. But those who speak in terms of whiteness imagine it as such. Yeah, I mean, you know, you say that people who are at these Trump rallies aren't churchgoers, but they kind of are. Yes. Oh, I'm glad you said that, yeah. Because those rallies really are a kind of church. And boy, does this shine through in the book and some of your exchanges. You know, I mean, 
it becomes crystal clear that you're dealing with something far beyond mere politics. Yeah, or mere Christianity, to quote C.S. Lewis, you know? Um, yeah. I, I think of a woman named uh, Diane G. She didn't want her last name used that I met in uh, Sunrise, Florida at a rally. And she had been raised in the church, uh, Church of the Foursquare Gospel, which is a conservative church. She had a conservative church. She no longer went, and she had started to think that they were perhaps part of the cabal. Instead, she studies QAnon, she studies Gnosticism, she studies Trump. And she's not a stupid woman at all, and I think that's kind of one of the misconceptions. I mean, the math she could do in her head with numerology, I can't do. But she had been swept up into this belief system. And I think that's also, there's a, a rhetorical mode that I would argue is a kind of a central rhetorical mode of fascism, which allows it to kind of creep into democracy. It begins with buffoonery. It ends with tragedy, right? It's farce first. And in a sense that, remember Trump said, I'm the chosen one? He was joking. And a lot of liberals like, I can't believe he said, it. yeah, he was joking. But as Trump always is, joking, not joking. Joking, not joking until it becomes a fact. So is Diane the woman who says, I used to think Trump was an arrogant fuck? Yeah, 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 exactly. But then that's before she realized that you have to hear the codes in what he's saying. It's not really what he's saying. It's what he's saying behind what he appears to be saying. And once you can see that, he doesn't make mistakes, right? Like the weird tweets, the capitalizations, the misspellings, all that stuff. It it all has meaning, right? That He doesn't make mistakes. It's all signaling in code, right? And the people who get it, get it. And the people who don't are the problem. Yeah. There's not much to say to that. Well, sure there is. Tell me more. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I do think, you know, one of the arguments of the book, is it is a story sort of driven book, but there is an argument in it, which is that you cannot fact check your way out of a myth, right? And I think all the time, because I spend so much time with folks like these people say, how can we reason with them? Well, you can't. For instance, with Diane G., the codes within the codes. For her, begins with Trump. I doubt it will end with Trump. They really do believe, for instance, that all the miscapitalizations can be read and tracked. And that means that Trump himself could go off the national scene or make a mistake. It doesn't matter. Just like John John Jr., who was forever alive. Any failure of belief you weren't reading it close enough. Just like one little thing from the history of religion that helps you understand it. The Seventh-day Adventists, which today are established mainstream church, begin with a prophecy of the end of the world, and they all gather on a hilltop for it to happen. You know, they have done their math, they have prepared it, and uh, no, the world doesn't end. I guess we didn't look closely enough. And the church has thrived and prospered ever since. I think that we probably agree that the Trump era has, among other things, been a kind of stress test of fascism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a way of surveying the results and saying, we failed miserably. And there's a way of surveying the results and saying, well, our institutions held and we passed, albeit <laughs> awkwardly. But I think even if you if you land in the latter camp, there's no way of assessing what has happened and not come away with an appreciation of how fragile and contingent this whole thing is. I mean, is that basically how you feel? Yeah, and I think there's sort of two things to say that. One, the institutions have held so far. So far. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not over. We're in the middle of things. And I understand the temptation to say the institutions held, right? But that's a different way of refusing to mourn. That's saying democracy held up. 
Yeah, but what at what terrible cost? The cost of the dead of COVID. I mean, that was part of Trumpism, right? The cost of this mental illness crisis that afflicts our children. The fact that queer folks are more and more being criminalized in 20 states. That's all the cost. That doesn't mean that fascism won. It didn't. One of the central lies of fascism, I believe, is inevitability. There's nothing that's inevitable. That sounds Pollyanna-ish, but it is something... Democracy is not inevitable either. Like the QAnoners, I pay attention to the codes, the, the meanings within the meanings. I think about the way you hear sometimes of speaking of preserving democracy. Whenever there's a metaphor, pay attention to it, right? Preserve democracy, you put it in a jam jar and put it on the shelf. No, you don't preserve democracy. What's the preposition? You don't even have democracy. It's a verb. It's something that you do. And so far, we have managed to keep doing it. But yeah, the stress test is ongoing. I mean, I'm exhausted. I don't know about you. I don't feel like, whew, I'm refreshed, uh, ready to go on for 50 years of Pax Americana. You know, I don't know. I go back and forth, Jeff. You know, I, I mean... It's breaking character for me to even attempt to steel man the optimistic side. <laughs> but, you <laughs> yeah. know, I mean, there has always been a, a fairly significant chunk of the population that would welcome fascism. I mean, that was true in 1934. It's true now, you know. And I'm not sure that chunk of the populace is any larger today than it was 100 years ago. You call, that's what you call optimistic, man. You, you America hater. <laughs> Seriously, though, right? I mean, I, I don't know. I think... It is possible that that group of the country is more visible and, and more loud for lots of reasons, technological among them, and they can cause more damage and make more noise, but it may not necessarily be a larger chunk than it was at any other point in human history, right? Yeah. It's possible. Well, I would say, I mean, having, you know, in my book, The Family, I write a lot about the history of right-wing movements and in their their precedents, actually, in the 18th and 19th century, some of the intellectual currents that fed them, even if they weren't right-wing themselves. And that's why, at the time, I thought fascism wasn't possible. I would disagree with you that there was the same number of folks. And the reason is, um, I'm going to sound like a, a Bible thumper, the reason is Jesus. But really, Jesus was, for the American population, a kind of a stumbling block to that European or Asian or South American-style fascism. You just couldn't have that same cult of personality. The strength of Protestantism really did that. They had a, something has been changing. That undertow has been happening for a while. It was quite startling. I think I saw it coming because of the reporting I'd done, but in 2015, 2016, to see one Christian right chieftain after another declare that he would stand athwart the wall and block Trumpism and then go down like dominoes, right? And the religion has been, for so many people, remade. So I think that's different. But I'm optimistic. I am optimistic like you. I think, look, we're certainly going to go through many years of at least what I call slow civil war. But the one thing we know about, if it is fascism, fascism burns out. It's not an enduring ideology. And I think we will get through it. Like, I have to say, I don't even, I'm not sure what to make of the fears people have over another civil war. You know, I mean, I, yeah. but <laughs> if we can meme and blunder our way into January 6th, then I don't know why we can't also meme and blunder our way into a hot civil war. I mean, I, I've always been a little skeptical of some of the histrionics about January 6th. Like, not because I, I think it was insignificant, but 
It was amazing how little happened that day. But no, but I was going to say, it's because of how utterly stupid and absurd so much of it was. Oh, yeah. But that's the farce. That's the buffoonery that yes, comes first. This, this is what I'm saying, right? So you got all these live streaming LARPers and these internet goofballs, and there's something absurd and, and horrifying about the reality that that is probably what a fascist coup looks like in this weird internet-driven postmodern hellscape of 2024. And the thing I have always, and I think you're reminding people of when this topic comes up, is that part of the reason fascism succeeded in early mid 20th century is because it initially appeared so ridiculous to the people in power. And it is very hard to accept that fascism on a deep, deep level is kitsch. It's pure spectacle. And that's part of what makes it easy to ignore until everything's on fire. Yeah. It makes us feel safe. And then we turn on our TV and say, that's just kitsch. What am I going to watch tonight? Oh, oh, the Kardashians. I think I'll watch that. We love kitsch. Kitsch has gravitational force. And sure it does. put it like this, what's happening as the fringe creeps into the center? You have the QAnon shaman. He's absurd. He's ridiculous. There he is uh, in the Senate, but whatever. And then you've got Marjorie Taylor Greene. And Jewish space lasers, that's a real thing that that woman said. That, you know, if you've seen some of the gun ads where she blows up cars and so on. Or you've got Ashley Babbitt. Well, but that's just a, that's a wackadoodle who went off the fringe. You've got Lauren Boebert, okay, open carrying to Congress. Well, she's a fringe, right? You've got the zip tie guy leaping over the, the boundaries on January 6th. What a fool. He's there with his mother. He's actually there with his mom. He brought his mom to the revolution. That's nice. Good son. And then you've got Josh Hawley. And we love to giggle at the video of Josh Hawley running. But the image that matters is Josh Hawley, an elite, an elite, not a fool, a very well-educated man, a very bright man, putting his fist in the air. Comedy and tragedy at the same time, it's the substance of a Trump rally. You turn the sound off if you want to understand Trump's rhetorical appeal. Turn the sound off and then get yourself some video of some old Borscht Belt comedians. As a Jew, I hate to say this, Trump is stealing a lot of Jewish comedy. His timing is comic, right? Yeah. And I think that... Certainly, you know, the brown shirts in Germany were ridiculous. I mean, yeah. you know, you go back at the time, and I've been reading some of that material, they thought they were really funny, because they were. They were fools. I mean, this, this, this ridiculousness, right, is so baked into the culture of the sort of neo-fascist movement and the digital era alt-right, and even like the manosphere that you write about in the book. Oh, God, I mean, yeah. Like everything is buried beneath a dozen layers of irony and satire and resentment and the lines are deliberately blurred. You don't know who's there for the LOLs and you don't know who's there for the freaking revolution. They don't either. <laughs> and maybe at some point it doesn't matter yeah. because the distinctions disappear, right? And it all ends up in the same place. Well, and I think that's actually one of the, so I think a lot of folks on the left and liberals, they think social movement is a term that belongs to us. No, there's right-wing social movements too. And when they happen, and we know this historically, it's because they're convergence of factions that would normally never talk to each other. So you've got the piety of the Southern Baptist Convention and Mike Pence combined with the deliberately transgressive sort of shock value of the Proud Boys, combined with the lunatic conspiracy theories of Alex Jones, combined with Supreme Court justices who, no matter how much I dislike them, are very powerful thinkers. And suddenly you have the Catholic far right aligning with evangelicals, which is not a given. You have this convergence of many trends. That's good news too, right? That means it's not a monolith. And, and paying attention to that goofiness, and I do, I spend a lot of time 
like I think of like the way people try to report on Ron DeSantis, and we've read like what maybe five, six profiles of Ron DeSantis now. Um, he's a dull man. He is a symptom of the age. We're not going to learn much. If you want to understand Ron DeSantis, you go to a school board meeting where people need to be separated by cops. You know how you find this out? Years of reporting about congressmen. I was always interested in asking them some odd questions. I remember Senator Sam Brownback from Kansas. He just had to poke a little bit. And he says, Jeff, are you familiar with the great spirit? I'm like, the great spirit? Do you mean like the great pumpkin? And he says, sort of, you know how the Indians believe. And then he starts telling me about the spirits of long dead Native Americans who have visited him and shaped his politics. I remember talking to a conservative Democrat, Mark Pryor from Arkansas, Senator Arkansas. So we asked him about separation of church and state. He said, did you know that it's not actually in the Constitution? I'm like, well, that's technically true. It's in the Bill of Rights. But um, he says, and in fact, Thomas Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptist had secret writing in it. And suddenly you realize the fringe has been right there in the center all along. Those institutional norms have shaved it off. And they're not anymore. We've got to take one last quick break. But when we're back, Jeff traveled all over the country and almost everywhere he went, he found lots of angry people saying they're ready for war. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. You spent so much time kind of crisscrossing the country. I mean, the, <laughs> the book in some ways almost reads like a piece of cultural anthropology. Do you think a lot of people, particularly people who live in the cities, just typical liberal democratic type, do you think they really have any idea what's, what's brewing in this country? I mean, I know some of them don't. I had a beloved editor, a very brilliant person. Um, we were working together on a piece, and I was writing about a family I met in Toma, Wisconsin. And they're just nice-looking family. I'm just talking, making conversation at a gas station as I'm driving through. And uh, little Let's Go Brandon, it was like so discreet, little Let's Go Brandon stickers. So I get to talking to them. And yeah, they have their kids with them, and they don't, you know, they don't want to use foul language, fuck Joe Biden, so that's why they do it. And, I mean, they ended up telling me the most lurid tales. They had once been traditional sort of pro-lifers, pro-guns, but now 
the dad and the mom both had these sort of fever dreams, these descriptions of what happens in abortion that are like a David Cronenberg movie, and these descriptions of the bloody violence that they want to perpetrate on abortion providers. And they used to have guns, now they have 36 guns, and they're arming. They had a lot of guns in the truck, but all from this little sticker says, let's go, Brandon. So I have this, and I'm talking to my editor, and so I don't, what does let's go, Brandon mean? I don't think anyone knows what that means. And that Suddenly, I mean, I live in Vermont, very blue state. I want to get a Let's Go Brandon sticker. I just choose a gas station five miles in any direction. I want to see a Let's Go Brandon flag. I just take a drive. I'll see it. If I want to see a Confederate flag in Vermont, there's one up there. If I want to see the flag that I think people in cities aren't seeing, and it's the one we need to recognize because it's popping up. I saw it for the first time two years ago. It's an all-black American flag. Not the Blue Lives Matter flag with the blue stripe. This is just sort of, you can barely make out the stripes and the stars. It's just shades of black. First time I saw it in Palmyra, New York, I didn't know what it meant. I slowly learned. It is a mythological flag. They think it was flown in the Civil War. It wasn't. But it means no quarter, no mercy. The Civil War is coming, and when the shooting starts, you take no prisoners. It's a genocide flag. I don't think this will ever come. But I think we, the way we make it not come is by paying attention to the fact that there are more and more of those flags. Yeah, I, I don't know what's coming. I mean, you know, the penultimate chapter in the book is you going across Wisconsin yeah. and, you know, you're you're engaging with some of these militia types. And, and there's a matter of factness to what they say that is pretty jarring. You know, there's this one particular militia leader, uh, Rob. Rob Rum, yeah. And he's explaining his interest in abortion to you. Yeah. And he's not doing it in terms of, of right or wrong. He's thinking about our national defense in like 30 or 40 or 50 years, right? He's worried if we keep aborting babies, we won't have enough white male foot soldiers, you know, when the Chinese invade, you know, and like, yeah, it, it speaks to my ambivalence sometimes about how seriously to take all this, you know, people have always lived on fantasies. It's just part of the human story, but it has never been easier to feed our delusions. And, and in so many ways, we've monetized our descent into paranoia <laughs> uh, at scale. Well, that's why I set out to really undermine my book sales by resisting the full doom scroll and beginning and ending it with these kind of hopeful chapters about old singers that nobody remembers. They're songs worn smooth by time, but that actually speak to the long struggle. Yeah. And at the same time, yeah, you look at Rob Brum. So I was in Wisconsin after Roe fell, and Wisconsin became the first blue state and so far the only blue state in which abortion became completely illegal. It reverted back to 1849 law, no exceptions. Some people I knew were in the process of IVF. Uh, my friend, she was on the table at the fertility clinic, and the doctor comes in crying, says, I've been advised by our counsel, we can't proceed. So here's this new law preventing someone from bringing life in. So for a variety of reasons, I decided to drive around the state and just talk to folks. And it was pretty easy because people fly flags down, all kinds of flags. And I would just pull up and talk to them. And I saw in Marinette, Wisconsin, big town, small city in the Northeast corner, an F, uh, this is podcast, I can say, fuck, fuck Trudeau flag. Um, and I thought that's odd in Wisconsin. And uh, I stopped and I ended up talking to the owner of the flag who comes out carrying, he's always carrying. He invites me in, 
He's noted that I've trespassing. He has sort of three registers. He says, you're a fed, you're an intruder, or you're a fool. And, and I ace the third test by being a fool. Um, or maybe a fed. He says, I don't care. You can't hurt me. And indeed, he had an arsenal of guns. How seriously do we take this guy? He claims his militia is six to 7,000 strong. That's not true. It's thousands. It's the heir to the Michigan militia. And there are others like it. I saw militia churches all over the country. And even that, how seriously do we take it? Not very, you know? That militia, the Wisconsin National Guard can dispatch them in a few minutes if they need to, right? So no concerns, except for all these little sparks. It's like we're sitting here as a country with a box of matches and we've got a soggy match, but we're sure we can light it. Nashville, a match. Expelling the Tennessee legislators, a match. Passing these anti-trans laws. There are casualties already. There's pregnant people dying for lack of reproductive health care. There's more QAnon. I try to write about this. We hear about big QAnon killings. A a dad kills his whole family because he's gone into conspiracy. I write about a woman named Evelyn in Austin, Texas. Uh, Liberal, hipster, Democrat, pandemic board starts going down the rabbit hole ends up ramming her car into other people's cars, trying to save the children. She thinks they're abducting them. She didn't make national news. Her story made a line in the local news. I'm like, a, I'm like the QAnon. You have to learn to read the codes, start poking around, get the police report, talk to the people. Then you find out. This is Q violence too. No one was hurt. Her life is ruined. That's a casualty of the slow civil war. Well, I mean, the match is the right word. And this is the reason... I simply cannot hold a human being in as much contempt as I do Donald Trump because his real legacy will be as a political arsonist, as this guy who has never cared about anything but himself, who lit all these flames like merely for the sake of attention and a decades-long grift, and yet the, the fire will survive him. It just really pisses me off, Jeff. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I yeah. I'm not alone. Yeah. I'm not, I don't think I'm, I'm not accomplishing anything with that statement, I guess. But What's wrong with you, Sean? Do you have Trump derangement syndrome? I guess so, man. I guess I'm up in my feels. But I mean, I, I yes. But at the same time, I, I really do believe you look at these sort of stories from the long struggle. You recognize, you know, in Wisconsin, I meet these young kids. They give me a lot of heart. Black River Falls, Wisconsin, small town. This is not Madison. You know, this is not Milwaukee. Right after Roe. I drive into town on the bridge over the Black River, a young woman holding her sign says, your misogyny is showing. When I circle back, more of her friends are there. There's a young cheerleader, a cheerleader, cheerleader of the Black River Falls Tigers, and she's holding a sign that says, fuck off. And what does she mean? She means me. She means you. She means all of us who are older and failed to preserve her rights, right? She's mad. She says, this means rage. Now, these kids are angry as hell. I was sort of surprised because they're nice kids, student body presidents. When I said, well, a lot of these folks, I met these militia leaders, they're talking about civil war. And the kids are like, bring it on. They all grow up hunting. They're all armed. They say, we're ready to do this. One of them's going into the Navy to get prepared. But it's fantasy. One of them is an archer. It's like Katniss, they say, from The Hunger Games. And that tells you when all these people speak of civil war, if you're born in America, you know, the only thing you know about civil war is what you've seen in movies. And what, what have you seen? Uh, maybe you've seen Glory, or maybe you've seen Red Dawn, and you think you're Patrick Swayze in the hills shouting Wolverines, right? This isn't real. The good news is, in Wisconsin, talking to those kids with their gun fantasies, remembering 
1973, you know, is when leftists bombed a math center, an army recruiting center at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Didn't mean to kill anyone, killed a physicist. They actually got a hold of a little crop duster plane and were dropping bombs from their plane. Um, this is pretty crazy stuff. There was a lot of bombings then. We got through it. Not because we always get through it, but because a struggle is long because it is possible to do it. But this is not the first time we've been in this tight spot. Yeah, but it is dispiriting that we're in a place where, you know, both sides are feel the need to engage in gun fantasies. That's we've right. we've already left the uh, the liberal democratic highway. I'm an all hands on deck kind of guy, so I at this point, you know, I I I like the Never Trumpers, I like Antifa, I have ideas. I don't think brawling in the street helps, but I'm I'm going to focus my energy on the threat, not on saying this is not the way. Um, I'm a gun owner myself, but it's a, an old 22 and I don't, it's not for taking out. I do think like, yeah, the John Brown gun club, that scares the hell out of me. Look, I've, I've said it before. I, there are two ways to change the world through conversation or violence. And if conversation ends, or if the possibility of conversation ends, then. Well, the possibility of conversation with much of the right has ended. And they're very clear about that then how do we imagine it this sort of different way? I mean, that's where I do get into, you know, as a father of a queer kid, non-binary kid, here we're safe. There's places where my child is, you know, in Kansas right now, they've just passed a law. They're criminalizing their existence. If you have, if my town library is hosting a drag queen story hour, whatever, right? And New Hampshire being New Hampshire, if we got guys with AR-15, no, I'm not going to go get my little 22 rifle. That's not going to help things. But, you know, people may not think it based on the, the conversation we've had, but your book does kind of start and end on a hopeful note. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, look, yeah, you, yeah. you don't think we're marching inexorably toward another hot civil war, do you? No, 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 no. Okay, I just want to make sure I have you pegged right there. No, I feel very confident that we can stop it. Yeah. I hope that my book is a contribution to that by helping people think about all right, I have to take this seriously. It's not going to be just be cool to say we're past Trump now. I need to pay attention to those fault lines, but also to pay attention to the long struggle. And as you say, I begin with Harry Belafonte and end with a guy named Lee Hayes. Nobody knows who he is, but if you've heard, if I had a hammer on top of old Smokey, Harry Belafonte, the banana boat song, Deo. These are songs I sang in elementary school. You know, I didn't realize that for the singers, they were once radical freedom songs. Harry Belafonte sang that song once in Mississippi, having been chased by the Klan. Him and Sidney Poitier chased through the night by the Klan. They were bringing cash for the Freedom Summer. Harry Belafonte bankrolled the civil rights movement. I mean, it's, it's him. Boy, he's a real one. He really, really is. And uh, he's still alive in his 90s, still mad as hell. Yeah. And he says... Where your anger comes from is not so important as what you do with it. What do you do with it? You sing your song like it's the first time. You sing your song and you give it away. This to me is the hope of the book. It's not cheap grace. I have kids who are scared. I can't say, hey, it's gonna be all right. It's just fine. Don't pay attention to the man with the guns. I have to say the hope here is hard, but that's what makes it more real. Look, you know, I would say that I'm not scared, but I am concerned. And that the world's in a bad way. We know that the world has always been in a bad way. And, and things have certainly been more broken than they are right now. And periods of turmoil are useful reminders that our civilization sits on a precipice and the floor can and eventually does drop out beneath us. But 
what is there to do but try to understand what's happening and make it better and to keep doing it until the music stops. <laughs> and hopefully that's what we're doing here. You do democracy. Look, I think of a line from the worst president in United States history, which, of course, we all know is not Donald Trump, but James Buchanan, 1856. Buchanan actually led us to a civil war. Terrible, terrible president. But there's this one point early in his presidency where he is being urged to kind of tamp down abolitionists as uncivil. And he says, Buchanan says, resisting his own party, he's no abolitionist. Um, he says, I like the noise of democracy. I like the noise of democracy. I'd also like my book to contribute to that noise. And that noise is not harmony, it's cacophony. It's a lot of people singing different songs all at the same time and disagreeing and discovering. Tolerance is, I'm going to argue so fiercely with you, but I am not going to bring out the guns and I'm not going to kill you, right? So the noise of democracy is a counter tradition that we can call upon and we can keep doing. You say we keep doing because what else is there to do? Has it ever been different? There's always loss and there's always mourning. And then, and then so far the world hasn't ended. So far. Yeah. Good news. <laughs> I told you this book was upbeat. <laughs> I knew we were going to end on a positive note. Yeah. Once again, the book is called The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. Jeff, um, you wrote a hell of a book. So thank you for coming in today. Thanks, Sean. Eric Janikas is our producer. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. After this conversation with Jeff, I'm, I'm actually not sure if I feel more or less optimistic about our future. There are some things that Jeff said that I agree with, and there are some things that I don't quite agree with, but he really did some good reporting here. And I appreciate the fact that Jeff actually went out into the country and talked to these people without reducing them to cartoon characters, because that happens quite a bit and it's not useful for anyone. As always, let us know what you think. Is Jeff being too optimistic? Am I being too pessimistic or optimistic? Are we all naive? Drop us a line at thegrayarea at vox.com. If you appreciated this episode, share it with all your friends on all the socials. New episodes drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe.